Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Today I'm in the artist project space at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art with Philip Scherer, an, uh, an organizer of this exhibit, Visual Clave, the expression of the Latino-Latina experience through album cover art, 1940 to 1990. Scherer is professor of anthropology and folklore and public culture at the University of Oregon. He also serves as the divisional dean of social sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences. Scherer's research interests focus on the politics of heritage and identity, popular and public culture, and tourism and transnationalism in the Caribbean and Caribbean diaspora. Scherer organized the exhibit with Pablo Iglesias, a Cuban-American designer, writer, musician, and DJ. Visual Clave is on view through April 21st, 2019. Thanks, Phil, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So first, let's start with you. What sparked your interest in the Caribbean and its culture? Um, originally, uh, interestingly, I maybe, is, um, was the music. Um, I was exposed to Caribbean music as a very small child um, as the result of uh, my father bringing some Jamaican folk recordings into the house. He was also a, a fan of, of Jamaican music. And I think from that point on, I'd always sort of harbored a strong interest in the region. I didn't actually go to begin doing research until the early 90s. And I didn't end up in Jamaica, actually. I ended up in Trinidad and Tobago. And I worked for about 20 years on the Trinidad Carnival. So talk a little bit about how the uh, topic of this exhibit intersects with your research interests. So I'm primarily interested in looking at the ways uh, creative or expressive culture um, connects to the broader political, social, cultural, historical experiences of a community. Um, so with Carnival in Trinidad, for example, I looked at migration of West Indians into New York City in, from the mid-60s, really actually earlier than that, but primarily from the mid-60s onward. And I looked at the way that Carnival was mobilized by that community as a way to create access to city services, to kind of promote awareness of the community, and also internally to foster a sort of sense of continuity between the community in diaspora, as it were, and their homeland. So tell us a little bit about the title of this exhibit, uh, Visual Clave. Yeah, so the, my co-curator on this, uh, really sort of the engine behind the, the show, Pablo Iglesias, who is, as you said, based on the East Coast, um, this was his title. He, he, um, his father was actually a percussionist, a Cuban percussionist, played um, congas and things like that. Um, I think for us, and maybe I'll speak a little bit for Pablo here, um, the idea of the clave, which is a rhythm instrument, um, <laughs> which uh, essentially sets the rhythm or sets the beat or at least helps establish the beat behind much of this music, um, was uh, an, a metaphor for Pablo in terms of establishing the way, because um, clave sort of indicates the key, um, that this artwork is a key or let's say a, a way to get into the experiences of the community. Uh, visually, right? This is a visual clave as opposed to a percussive clave. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so tell us a little bit more about Pablo Iglesias and how you came to become involved with this project with him. Um, well, I, I've known Pablo since I was about maybe 18 years old. Um, we first met in, at university um, and bonded over music, um, especially uh, Latin American and Caribbean music. And um, we both were collecting albums at the same time. His collection 
continued <laughs> far past mine. Um, and uh, we've always wanted, he published a book in, the, in 2005, I believe, um, about his album cover collection. And then he, on his own, turned that into essentially a version of this exhibition. Um, and I thought it would be really great, considering the kind of material I teach and my colleagues teach, that we could get a version of that show here. Um, and in the, in the interim, I mean, he's done quite a lot of work on Latin American music, both publishing about it, producing it, writing about it. Um, it's kind of the world he inhabits. And um, so, uh, and also just, um, I'm not sure that it was clear in the show materials, he is himself a painter. Um, so when I first met him, he, you know, that's what he was doing, he's producing his own art. In some ways, very much, I can see a lot of his influences from some of the artists that, that we have on display here. So I think for him, it was a, kind of a lifelong passion. And he's coming to speak at the UVO, isn't he? He is coming to speak, uh, plug for that. Um, he's coming on April 11th, and we'll be get, giving a lecture here at the museum, followed by a reception. Um, and I think the, the talk will really go deeper into sort of all of, and you know, his level of knowledge about this music and these artists is pretty profound. So I, I'm looking forward to that. Cool. So um, I think the, you know, there may be people who would say, why would you have a bunch of album covers in a art museum? What, how does that, why does that make sense? How would you reply to that question? I think, I would say it makes sense in lots of ways because it is artwork. Um, and, uh, but more specifically in this case, and maybe uh, more specifically in relation to this specific museum, because I see this institution as having a strong teaching mission. And I think that, um, one, this was a very interesting way for these artists to get their work seen. Um, in the absence of r routine venues for them to show their work, um, this is a way to get a lot of people to see your artwork. Um, and the artists themselves um, generally had, had a pretty close connection to the musicians, um, especially as the industry itself became increasingly uh, managed by members of the community, as opposed to, let's say, big labels or outsiders or whatever. Um, the, there was, there's a feeling of collaboration on all of these pieces um, where the, the music, the musicians, um, the artists, and what they're trying to achieve, both visually and orally, uh, comes together in the art. And so they're all of a piece um, in a way that maybe some of the earlier album covers that we have here don't show that relationship. Um, the more time passes, and this is kind of a temporal uh, experience as you go through the, the show. Um, increasingly, you can see that collaboration, um, a shared sense of humor, a shared experience in the community, a shared desire to show n people who are not members of the community what this experience is like. And that, we thought, was this wonderful way, visually, um, and of course, there is music involved in the show as well, mm -hmm. um, to, to show how material culture um, and artwork like this uh, can be kind of used as a way of framing the experiences of a community and then we can use that to teach. Mm -hmm. And it is the case that there are a number of pieces of, of the original art alongside uh, the album covers that yes. are also really interesting to yes. see. 
So let's talk a little bit about the um, artists themselves. So these are uh, Latinx artists, and that's, a, that, that's obviously a very broad and capacious category. So tell us a little bit about the sort of range of uh, heritages and nationalities that these artists are coming from. When we say Latino, Latina artists, from where uh, these people, where, where's their heritage from? Yeah, so in some ways we let the music um, kind of lead us in that way. And um, so the, I mean, I suppose the kind of big three that you might find represented here would be artists and musicians um, from Puerto Rico, um, artists and musicians from Cuba or the Cuban diaspora, and um, artists and musicians who are part of the Chicano community. Um, so originally, you know, from Mexico. Those would be the, the prime, I'm trying to think if there are others that I'm missing. Um, in general, one could include artists and, and musicians from the Dominican Republic and et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, given that diversity, um, the kinds of musical influences that go into this music are also comparably diverse, yes? Yes. Can you say something about some of those? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the kind of key um, sort of aesthetic continua <laughs> uh, that runs through the musical aspect of it would be the sort of coming together of um, European and African forms. Um, and there is a pretty demonstrable, right, level of kind of African contribution mm -hmm. rhythmically and in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's largely acknowledged. I mean, the individuals themselves um, would come from their own mixed heritage. And um, so I think that that's, those are the kind of key components. The other thing that it, as a part of that, so we have the, the musical, sometimes we call it anthropology, syncretism, mm -hmm. coming together of different traditions. We would have the visual ones as well. Um, but these also demonstrate the cultural ones. You might see them actually reflected. Uh, so for example, references to Afro-Caribbean religion um, in the form of Centuria or Vaudon or Orisha or any of those um, religions that are a combination of kind of European Catholicism and generally Yoruba-based um, religious traditions in West Africa, what's now Nigeria or Benin, um, those, those are reflected all throughout. Sometimes people um, are surprised to hear, for example, one of the most famous, uh, I would say, sort of um, ambassadors of this era and of this music would be Desi Arnaz. Mm -hmm. um, and Desi Arnaz, as you know, coming to prominence through the I Love Lucy show and his marriage to Lucille Ball, the fact that they are often considered one of the first interracial couples ever to appear on television. He's sometimes known almost um, as almost in, in a caricature way, mm -hmm. as playing the congas and singing Babalu. Um, and Babalu Aye is a, is a refrain from an Afro-Caribbean religion. Uh, it's an, essentially an invocation of one of the key spirits um, of that religious complex. Mm -hmm. um, and so those, these are things that washed over the American public in the 50s without them knowing very much about it. Mm -hmm. um, yet it's a key and central piece of the kind of Cuban-American experience or the Puerto Rican-American experience. So the exhibit focuses on the 50 years between 1940 and 1990. Why, why is that the temporal range of the show? 
Um, I suppose at some level it could go beyond. Um, I mean, there's always going to be some kind of uh, boundary <laughs> to any show, or else we'd be wandering through this museum forever. Um, I think that it's easier in some ways to talk about the 50s as the starting point um, than it is maybe to talk about the 90s as the ending point, but at least for me. Pablo might have a different mm -hmm. take on that. But um, for me, the 1950s uh, mirrors a point at which um, there's really this massive explosion in popularity um, outside of the kind of diasporic communities themselves. So you have a mambo craze in the 50s and this sort of, um, I suppose, this kind of sudden interest in all things Latin American. Um, and, and not just from the Spanish-speaking uh, Caribbean, for example, but uh, also from the English-speaking Caribbean, because there's simultaneously a calypso craze mm -hmm. that happens at this period. And um, people sometimes forget that the first million-selling album in recording history, and I hope I get this right or I'll get <laughs> lots of phone calls, um, was from Harry Belafonte's album, uh, his first album, or one of his first albums. Um, and, and that was a, an um, enormous achievement, first of all, and a huge um, landmark recording. And the Calypso craze and the Mambo craze kind of happened r roughly at the same time. Um, and you can see American record companies really trying to cash in on this interest. The interest itself almost certainly has this kind of um, colonial uh, antecedent to it. Um, for example, in the 40s, the United States was very, very active during World War II in establishing a military presence in the Caribbean, um, which also translated into a kind of um, economic presence, whether it was our interventions in Haiti at the time, our military bases on Trinidad, which led to the uh, public awareness in the U.S. of Calypso music to begin with. Mm -hmm. GIs coming back from those places brought this stuff with them. And I think that it's just opened up this whole new musical world um, for, for, unite, for just sort of, especially white Americans. Yeah. So you, you, you've mentioned that there is a kind of chronological through line in the way that the exhibit is structured. Say a little bit about the organization, because it's, it's broken into these thematic sections. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, um, they're, they're partly temporal, I guess, in some way, and they are partly thematic um, around um, what we hope uh, reflect um, something that we're also hoping to use, you know, to teach with, which is what was of concern to these communities at different periods, um, and it changes over time. Um, I think one of the first um, kind of boundary markers between the different sections is temporal in the sense that on one wall, early on in the show, when you first come in, you see a, a section of about four album covers from the 1950s, mm -hmm. from that period that we're talking about, mm -hmm. from the time in which this music is, is exploding onto the uh, United States scene. Um, and there you can really see, or at least you can maybe assume, that the artists who are used to make these album covers are in fact not the artists who will later come to dominate the scene. Um, and in that regard, you can see, to some degree, a catering to external tastes with mm -hmm. regard to the, and playing on um, externally held stereotypes about what this community means. Um, and you, you know, whether it's 
um, the sort of you know Latin heat <laughs> or sexuality or um, you know these kind of assumptions about um, Latin American culture coming from the Caribbean specifically. Um, when you start to move into the 60s, um, you begin to see not only reflected in the artwork, but even just in the album labels, um, that maybe these are new labels emerging onto the scene, and that these labels uh, are um, in, in the hands of, at least wholly or in part, in the hands of members of the community themselves, possibly the musicians or others. Um, and that's around the time, at least for me, that I begin to see the arrival of this collaboration, the use of um, Latin artists um, and the album covers themselves reflecting the priorities of the um, musicians. And you can probably, I think, also see the songs themselves. You know, what, what kind of material is selected to put on the, the album itself is really something that's um, an expression of the musicians and what they're experiencing. So you have this really new kind of package. Um, and I think you can see that um, in other parts of the show where you see what life is like in the barrio mm -hmm. or uh, political statements mm -hmm. or a throwing back of Latin stereotypes. Mm -hmm. You know, you know we, we know what you're talking about behind our backs or whatever. We know how we're represented outside of our own communities and we're going to kind of take control of that. So let's talk specifically about the period of the 60s when civil rights movements are happening, social upheavals. Um, those are impacting um, pub public white perceptions of, of Latinx people and it's also their own self-perceptions. Say something about what's happening more specifically to, the, to this album art at that particular moment. So you've just mentioned you start getting images of the barrio. Say something a little bit more about some of the things that we're seeing here. Like one of the areas is uh, one of the themes I think is called protest, right? Right. So, right? so say something about that. Yeah, so um, there is a rise in, uh, in the 1960s of kind of identity-based political movements and we see it in lots of different communities at the time. Um, I would maybe zero in, in some ways, within the show, this is where, not the only place, but one of the places where we highlight the Chicano musicians specifically. Um, there was a strong movement, right, in California for Chicano identity. Um, and in relation to that, there's, a, I think, a set of interesting things that begin to happen with the artists and musicians. One is there is um, a reflection of the broader protest culture of the 60s. Um, and, and that can take several forms you can see around the show. There's also, to me, an interesting thing that the artists do, which is sort of searching for the root, in a way. Mm. Um, and, you know, in some ways leaping out of the, back out of the diaspora experience itself into something that is a kind of a common cultural, um, you know, font, cult, you know, for the community. Mm. So sometimes you'll see reflected in the artwork it could be even sort of heavily romanticized reflections on the Aztec empire, you know, or, um, or, or when it comes to the African component of some of these communities, looking to Africa in a very positive way. And that, I think, really begins to come out in the later 60s artwork that you see around, around the show. So you've spoken about that iconography. Are there any other examples of iconography um, I'm thinking of one which the album cover looks like it's a mug shot and a, 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 a most wanted poster. Say right. a little bit about some of that kind of appropriation of 
I mean, as you, as you explained, sort of throwing back stereotypes. Say something about that iconography. Yeah, there's definitely a period of kind of um, the sort of the, the malo, you know, or the kind of the appropriation of the, the hoodlum or the hoodlum. gangster identity, um, which on the one hand, one could trace all the way back to sort of externally generated ideas about the community in things like West Side Story. Mm -hmm. I mean, in West Side Story, like, we see a humanizing, as it were, of the Puerto Rican experience, mm -hmm. but it does also revolve around uh, um, street gangs. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there was this kind of almost sociological effort to contextualize the Puerto Rican street gang in relation to the immigration experience mm -hmm. and other things. And it's attempting, I think, to be sympathetic. Um, that messaging, I think, is seized in a really interesting and in some ways different way by the artists themselves mm -hmm. in, the, in the early 60s where gangsterism or the hoodlum is both kind of romanticized um, and it is a reflection of kind of toughness and endurance and um, but also maybe a little bit of well this is who you think we are anyway um, but I think there's that thing you know, I think maybe later you might also see this in the rise of the marketing of, let's say, rap music. Mm -hmm. um, there's almost an embrace of the toughness and the kind of you know, street credibility of the community mm -hmm. through the music, and the musicians participate in that. Um, it's interesting how often with, with the Latin album covers, it's almost a nod to the mafia, uh -huh. um, you know, almost like the Italian mafia. Uh -huh. um, but I think it's a subtle play there. It's owning some aspect of that toughness and kind of um, almost like a sort of modern day warrior <laughs> quality, mm -hmm. um, but it's also an acknowledgement of external stereotypes as well. Is it possible to, I mean, you, you've just sort of gestured quickly to a kind of continuity between this album art and the album art of hip hop. Mm -hmm. Are there, is it possible to make, so, draw some generalizations about how this art is distinct from the other album art that's being uh, produced at that, at, at, during this period? Um, I think there probably is. I, I think that certainly these album covers, to my mind, reflect some industry-wide trends mm -hmm. that are happening um, at the time. So, um, you know, when psychedelia kind of becomes the sort of selling point of the day in the 60s, the, this, this community of musicians and artists is right there with it. I mean, you know, there's that famous Tito Puente album cover. It's just completely psychedelic. Um, and other ways in which we see that they're not bucking the trends in some ways. Um, I think what's more maybe, um, for example, and you see it in a lot of funk album covers from the early 70s, mm -hmm. the musicians, whether it's Curtis Mayfield or any of these people, are often standing in sort of bombed out urban, you know, hellscapes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this happens here as well. Um, I would say the differences are just, um, one, I think that there's an intentional commonality mm -hmm. that's being made between the experiences of, let's say, African Americans in the South Bronx and, um, you know, Latin people in that same part of the country, um, and this common cause being made about um, kind of, you know, perpetual impoverishment and, you know, defunding and all the rest of it, poor school funding and all the, there's, they want to share in that awareness, and they're doing so. I think in other ways, 
um, this album, these albums are different in their ability to highlight what's unique about the Latin experience too. So you'll find lots of, let's say take the same era and take funk, um, which is another favorite of mine, so I know those album covers decently well. There's a lot of food in funk. There's food talked about in the, in the music and also reflected in the album covers. And that does, I think, also connect to the kind of roots of African-American culture in the South and all that kind of stuff. And so even with African-American displacement North or movement North, the food comes with it, the culture comes with it. Um, this is reflected just differently because it's different food. And there's a kind of nostalgia to some of it. Um, but also, um, you know, and some of this is communicated within the community. This is the food that we eat, this, you know, but it's also being sort of projected outwards as well. And I think that's what makes some of this stuff different. They, they're, they're trying to highlight what's unique about, let's say, the Neo-Rican experience or the Chicano experience. So is it possible for you to say something about how things have changed since the 1990s in terms of the way Latinx music is marketed and how it's, I mean, you said it's harder to draw that line where the exhibit stops at the end of it than it was at the beginning. But is it possible? To, are there some distinctions to be drawn at that point? Um, you know, I would probably be um, just kind of shooting from the hip a little on uh -huh, that. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> no need to do that. But there's definitely, ironically, I suppose, there's a, in the 90s, there is a kind of rediscovery mm. of Latin music across a broad spectrum. And so if I think about the sort of shooting to stardom of somebody like Ricky Martin or Jennifer Lopez. Um, there's a opening up of a, a new generation of consumers, as it were, um, who are you know, not Latino themselves um, or not Latinx themselves. And, but I think in most of those cases, that music is again being recorded, produced, and distributed by major labels. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would, I would love for Pablo to be able to tell us a little bit more about like, what happens to the, to the kind of um, more focused, I suppose, like community-based, if you want to call it that, yeah. uh, uh, labels by the time we get to, like what happens to, I mean, Fania, I think is, I don't know if it's still around, but um, you know, it was a major power in the production of this music in the 60s and 70s, um, I believe. And by, it begins, to, maybe they can't compete with the better, supported bigger labels um, uh, and I don't know that Ricky Martin or any of these people actually or Gloria Estefan for that yeah, matter yeah. Um, employ Latin artists to do their covers etc yeah yeah that's really interesting um, so we just have a couple of minutes left um, I'll ask you one maybe the, I'll ask you another um, uh, is there uh, uh, well first of all have you collected some of these albums yourself do you, is this an, an area of music that you have a, you know, a kind of uh, collector's mania for? So, so only a little bit. Um, and it was really, uh, Pablo introduced me to a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, my work is a lot in the English and French speaking Caribbean and that mm -hmm. tends to be the music that I know better. Mm -hmm. um, the one area that where we kind of came together was when he began to introduce me to Boogaloo specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was being um, friendly <laughs> in that a lot of that music was uh, sung in English. And also a lot of that music is heavily influenced by American R&B. And so that's the one kind of sliver of this stuff. So whether it's Joe Cuba or Joe Batan or Willie Colon, that era in which they're, even Tito Puente, that era where, where they're producing Boogaloo um, 
I really, really l love that. Pablo is much more broad in his, you know, going into salsa and, and mambo and merengue and even cumbia and all those things, you know, he has a much broader collection. I'm a I do like some of the other stuff too. I mean, I have examples of almost every genre here, but just not to the same level of depth. Although one thing we share is just a fascination with vinyl. Okay. <laughs> um, well, on that note, uh, Phil, I want to thank you for speaking with us today about this fascinating show, Visual Clave, uh, which is uh, at the JSMA right now. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope uh, everyone will come and check it out. They, yes, please do. Um, I've been speaking with Philip Scher, a professor of anthropology and folklore and public culture at the University of Oregon. He also serves as the Divisional Dean of Social Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences. Scher is an organizer of this exhibit, Visual Clave, the expression of Latino, Latina experience through album cover art from 1940 to 1990. It's on, uh, it's on show right now at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art in the Artists Project space. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you.